Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before with insight from some of the best in the business of reality TV, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, true crime, and much more from chef's table to The Bachelor to The Real Housewives of Atlanta. If it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television with shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, and Friday Night Tykes Under My Belt. Each episode, I talk to the talented people who make unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, and game shows, not just something you watch, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. I'm also on Clubhouse now, yeah. I don't know if you know about Clubhouse, but get on it. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. That's E-L-E-A-V.com. All right, let's get started with the show. Today, my guest is an Emmy-nominated director, writer, producer, and showrunner. He does it all. He's best known for directing, writing, and producing the Netflix documentary, Amanda Knox, executive producing and directing the Netflix series Chef's Table, executive producing and directing the Netflix series Trial by Media, and co-creating the Netflix series Street Food. I believe that's a lot for Netflix. So if you watch Netflix, you know this man's work. He is also a co-founder of the production company Supper Club. Please welcome Brian McGinn. Brian, how you doing, ma'am? I'm good, Steve. Thanks for having me. We've got a new administration in the White House. I always just, you know, we gotta, you know, we've gotta <laughs> talk about it, right? Are, are you excited to have Joe Biden, Kamala Harris in the White House? Yeah, I think more than anything, I'm excited that our. I'm not sure that the nonfiction television programming is going to be as political now. It's going to be really interesting to see how that works. But no, I'm really excited to see what happens. Um, I think especially around COVID. It's going to be really great to have um, an administration that really uh, is tackling the problem head on and, and being proactive. So I'm really excited about that. And, it, you know, it's an exciting day anytime there's, um, you know, a bit of new hope. So I, that's been great. Yes. And how do you feel that politics affects entertainment in general, uh, whether it is scripted or unscripted? And really, how does it affect your work? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure how it affects um, my work in particular. I, I think that, you know, for me, I've, I've always been really drawn to character studies and, um, you know, trying to get to know people through their words and hearing their stories and, and finding something universal in the, in the particular or in the specific. Um, so th that's that's always been something that I am really drawn to. And so, you know, I guess in this kind of current political climate where both sides are really looking 
to, um, well, I shouldn't say that because that's some of my worst both sides thing. What one <laughs> side in particular is looking is looking to divide people rather than bring them together. I think that goes kind of in the in the face of the kind of work that I like to do, which is you know really finding those things that that bridge us and connect us. Yeah. So, um, so I, I don't think in that way that my work is is really connected to politics, but maybe bizarrely. <laughs> in in the current world, um, there's something political about a show, uh, you know, a street food show, um, celebrating, you know, cultural diversity and um, the way that food connects all of us. You know, I, I, maybe maybe we've stumbled into a slight political thing, though it's not intentional at all. Well, I I look at what you've done. I mean, you do you have done something that people care about, no matter who they are, and that's food. Is that something that you're cognizant of, or are you just somebody who, like you said, I like food, I like food programming, I love chefs in terms of their characters, in terms of what they do and their skills. Is it something you think about, or you do you just love the content? When you try to do the kind of stuff that, that we're at least trying to do, which is, you know, telling the story of, of people irrespective of their backgrounds, um, and sharing the kind of uh, journeys that people go on. You know, you, you, we've made some episodes of Chef's Table that certainly have political components to them. Um, particularly, you know, we did an episode about Christina Martinez, um, who makes amazing lamb barbacoa in Philadelphia um, and, and came to this country, you know, as an immigrant. Um, so certainly there's, you know, components of some of the stories we tell that that touch on, I guess, what would <laughs> what would be hot button issues if they yeah. were talked about in a different context. But I think that sure. I think that when you when you boil stories down to their hopefully their their most basic kind of humanity, it, it doesn't really become about political party or political affiliation or um, any of those things or tribalism. It becomes about you know the the shared challenges and and journeys that we all go on as as human beings so i think that's really what we're interested in and um you know we'll see maybe we're going to start having a lot of those chats about how to reach <laughs> different viewers but um to to date it's really been about um you know how can we tell some stories that are really compelling and and hopefully um people connect with and you've really found an audience on netflix with chef's table can you tell me a little bit about that process of selling Chef's Table? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it, it was sort of, gosh, when did, so David Gelb and I, um, who are also partners in our production company, Supper Club, we started talking about um, Chef's Table in 20, 2012, 2013. And we had met uh, because we've been connected by some mutual friends. We shared a enthusiasm about um, the aesthetic potential of documentaries, yeah. that documentaries didn't have to be kind of ugly in order to be true, or they didn't yeah. have to be shot in a, Ready. you know, yeah, there, there was a way to kind of elevate the aesthetic of the, the medium while still remaining true to the, you know, the core journalistic tenets and the ethics and all of those things that I think are really important in documentaries. So especially now as people have, you know, as news has gone away, people now are like, oh, I, I can get my information from docs. Um, but uh, we started developing the show, you know, after David had made Jero James a sushi, a lot of people had, had been telling him, 
oh, you should make a doc food TV series. But all the ideas were sort of, um, you know, okay, David on camera going around uh, the world, filming the world's best chefs. And it was almost like this meta layer, sort of like catfish or something like that. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of that was because the idea of the unhosted doc series was relatively new. There weren't a lot of reference points for that that yeah. had been successful, certainly on linear TV or cable or basically we came up with this, the idea for chefs table. I kind of, I had a bunch of chef friends. So I had this, this knowledge of the food world. And I was saying like, why don't we just do what you did with Jiro, but let's figure out a way to do it in the television medium. Let's keep pushing the aesthetic even further and let's find stories all over the world. And let's make it a, let's make it a way to, to show the diversity of the world and also the diversity of the food universe. So um, that was kind of the original conception of the show. And the crazy thing was no one, <laughs> at this point, it seems crazy, but all of our agents, all of our, all the people that we talked to kind of said like, there's no way you'll sell this show um, without a host. And right. so we just kind of sat on it for a couple of years. And then one day we got a call that Netflix was looking for doc series i think this is in 2013 maybe the middle of 2013 so maybe it was a little earlier that we started developing it but middle of 2013 we went in and we met with lisa nishimura and adam del deo um and zana lawrence i believe was in the and barjan javadi who's now at disney plus um and uh pitched them the series and um you know we were really we were really lucky because Jiro had done well on Netflix. And so there was, there was some interest um, on their end from, you know, to hear a pitch from a couple of 28 year old guys uh, yeah. who had never made a TV show. Right. Um, and so, you know, we pitched the show, they were really into it. And then, uh, you know, the conversation was sort of along the lines of like, Hey, you know, we'd, we'd like to do this, but you know, you guys have never delivered television to network, you know, what's, what's a way that we can, you know, find the right production company partner for you guys. And so we, we kind of got, we paired up with Andrew Freed, um, who's our third executive producer to, you know, help us from a, you know, delivering a show to a network standpoint, uh, which was new to us at that point. So, yeah. so that was kind of the origin of the show um, and how it started. And then it was really just, the, a very small group of people who happen to all be kind of friends and all in the same age bracket. And a, a lot of, a lot of the people that work on the show, you know, we all went to college together or one of the DPs was Adam was uh, David's DP. And one of the DPs was a DP that I worked a lot with Adam Bricker. Um, and David's DP was Will Basanta. So, you know, the way that the team came together was really organic, but that that's kind of the origin story of the show. It was, you know, everyone saying no, you, you really couldn't do that. And we kind of went like, okay, I guess we can't do that. And then <laughs> the opportunity presented itself where we could do that. And the funny thing now is that that's a lot of the stories of all of these chefs is, you know, everyone says, no, 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 you can't do that if it's any sort of different thing. Um, and then of course, the reality is that, <laughs> of course, there's, there's generally a way to do uh, anything if you, if you put your mind to it and you, and you get lucky, you know, and that was, that yeah. was, we were, we were really lucky to get in the room with, um, with those amazing people at this exact moment when 
Netflix is starting to do doc series. So, what do you look for when it comes to casting the chefs for Chef's Table? Is it story? Is it a specific food that they are experts in? Is it a variety of things? What are you looking for when it comes to the cast? I wish I could say that there was a real specific thing, but it's changed over time. So when I was casting the, you know, the first few seasons of the show, it was really, you know, we were coming off Jiro. Jiro's a three Michelin, Jiro Ono, for those that don't know the film. Um, it's a film about an octogenarian sushi chef who has a three Michelin star sushi counter in, in Tokyo. Uh, and it's about this constant quest for perfection, which is always just out of reach, right? And, uh, but below the surface, it's also about Jiro's relationship with his, his sons and uh, the expectations and the pressures that are put upon, you know, the next generation of a family to take over from a legend. Uh, and so when we were casting the first couple of seasons, what I was really looking for were stories of that real high-end, um, lots of awards on all these, Mich you know, on the Michelin, in the Michelin guide with three stars. I was looking for those people that were doing the real fancy fine dining. And it was really, you know, it was amazing for us to get to spend time talking to all of those iconoclastic people and to, to do all of that. And the thing that's really happened as the show has, has grown and evolved is that, you know, we've grown and evolved too. And We've also wanted to find different kinds of stories to tell. And so as the years have gone on, and we're, I think we might be now one of the longer tenured doc series on Netflix, um, yeah. we've been able to, uh, you know, we're really lucky that we've been able to expand the way that we look at what kind of food story uh, we want to share. And, you know, in the, I think, gosh, what was it? The third season, I think we we did a, a Buddhist nun in, in South Korea, Jungkwan who's amazing and her food is insanely delicious. And, um, but you know, she doesn't even have a restaurant. She's cooking for her, for her temple. Um, and so food means a little bit of a different thing to her than it, you know, than someone trying to replicate a hundred perfect plates of food in a three Michelin star restaurant. And then, you know, we've continued kind of on that path to tell all sorts of different diverse stories. And um, recently we've been looking for more, uh, we're, we've almost kind of focused in on genres of food yeah. for lack of a better term, but we did a season on barbecue and right. all the different things that barbecue can mean uh, that, that, that was out earlier in, in 2020. And you know, I think we're gonna continue doing that, exploring in the same way that I think the show is always interested in the personal stories behind the food and the chefs life story uh, as much as the specifics of what goes into the dish. You know, our goal at the beginning was we're not gonna make a cooking show. We're not gonna tell you how to make something. We're gonna tell you, you know, where does this, where does, this, where does the inspiration come from for a dish? How does, the, how does, a, how does a dish reflect a, um, a life or a creative philosophy of the person behind it? Um, so that's always the way that we're, we're thinking when we're casting. Um, and I'm always looking for you know, people that have really unique, interesting stories. And now we're looking for folks who, you know, also have different stories than the kinds of ones that we've featured on the show, because, yeah, sure. you know, the journey is very, I don't want to say it's the same, but for a lot of people at the high end of the culinary world, the journey is, is relatively 
similar. So for us as storytellers, it's exciting to, you know, share different paths and different um, different experiences than than we have in the past. One of the things that a lot of people will tell you, or at least a lot of people told me when Chef's Table was starting to really get buzz was, oh, you've got to see it. It looks totally different. You know, it has, you know, it looks different than any other food show. Tell me a little bit about that decision, whether it was with the DP or with or amongst yourselves, you know, who created the show, that decision to shoot it in a different style, whether it was with a different kind of camera, um, to really make it look different than any other food show. Yeah. Uh, first off, it's really, it's really nice to hear because it was something that we put a bunch of time into. I think it goes back to sort of not knowing what we're <laughs> what we're not supposed to do. And so there's some there's some freedom that I think comes from that I that I wish I still had, right? Yeah. <laughs> it comes from not knowing what the rules of the game are. Um and so, you know, when when David and I sat down and we were trying to plot out, well, what is the show going to look like? Um we were thinking, oh, this is a documentary feature. We want to make this look as beautiful as possible. And right. then and so that means we're going, we're instead of having zoom lenses, we're going to shoot all on primes and we're going to, we're going to be a little bit more deliberate in how we work. And maybe we're going to miss a moment or two of traditional verite documentary. Um, but what the trade-off for maybe missing a moment or two of that run and gun feel is that we're going to be able to craft an aesthetic that feels, um, you know, hopefully a bit more elevated than the traditional TV aesthetic, and it, and it's not that it's not that one is better than the other. It's just it, a lot of it is about um, the time that you put into each shot, right? Like how much yield do you need? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and how many resources do you choose to put um, into the aesthetics? And right from the beginning, we kind of chose. Okay, um, you know, as soon as we talked to Andrew we realized, oh, we're not actually going to be able to shoot a doc feature on every person. We're gonna, this is going to be on a, you know, kind of a hybrid television film schedule. Uh, but then talking to our DPs who, you know, both Adam and Will come from scripted backgrounds as well. And, you know, the conversations were always, how can we almost approach making a doc? What is a documentary that's approached in the same, with the same care as a scripted fiction feature, what does that look like? And so that was a lot of the conversations we were having um, in terms of crafting the visual language for the show. And then Adam and I went off and shot the pilot for it in Australia. And, you know, we just learned a lot about kind of what was possible and what was not. And, and we've just been honing that ever since. And, you know, now when we go into a, to a kitchen, you know, we're relighting the whole kitchen. That's the yeah. first step, right? Yeah. We're, we're we're coming up with, okay, what's, what's an idea for how we want to shoot the food that feels different. And we're trying to push each other. And I think all the DP director pairings are constantly doing that. So uh, that's a long-winded answer, but yeah, it, I think it's really just about, it was a priority for us and we didn't know that we weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> we didn't know we weren't supposed to do that. Uh, it just felt like the natural thing for us. So, um, so we did it uh, and it, we're just lucky that we were able to pull it off, I think. Is there a specific chef or a specific um, episode that sticks out in your mind as 
you know, something that you're, you'll always remember, or maybe something that you can point to is like, this is what the show's all about. This is mm. what makes Chef's Table great. Gosh, I mean, every experience is really special in its own way. For the show, uh, just the life experiences for me, I mean, I've, as a result of the show, I've been to Bali, I've been to Russia, I've been to Italy numerous times, as you can, I, I always, I run to try to get the Italy episode yeah, because I'm sure. such a italaholic, if that's a word. Um, I've been, I've been to, did I say Russia? You know, I've been to yes. all these places that, yeah. um, that I don't think I would have necessarily been without the, the show. And so, you know, for me, that's a really, it's just been an amazing eye-opening world broadening uh, experience. The, the, the moment that I, that always stands out for me, every shoot has been amazing, right? Like that, that's been the, the thing. And I've developed friendships with most of the chefs that I've been able to shoot with is, which has been unbelievable. Uh, but one, I, I got to go to Jung Kwan's monastery uh, a couple of years ago. I didn't direct that episode. David did, my partner, David. Um, and so I hadn't been there for the shoot because, you know, I'm, I, I go to the ones I direct and I go to, as an EP, I go to a couple, maybe a season if I'm lucky. Um, and I, but I got to go visit Jung Kwan's monastery and it was, it was just such a, a step outside of the Los Angeles hubbub of production and trying to make things. And that being the, that being the language and the system that is constantly dominating my, my time and my thoughts. Uh, and so that for me, just being able to see how she lives and how she cooks and then to go, wow, we, we were, we were lucky enough to share that story with people. Um, yeah. I think that's the thing that it keeps coming back to for me is just what a privilege it is to be able to get welcomed into the lives of people who are the absolute best in the world at what they do, no matter in what genre of food. Um, and, and to be trusted to tell those stories, like that's crazy. I don't think anyone in our world ever thought that that was gonna be the result of the show. Uh, it just seemed like something that we could do as friends. Um, so that, that's the thing that I stand back and, and go, wow, I'm really proud that, that we've been able to, to do that and, and to continue to, to push forward with that is really exciting. So it, it's not so much a moment from any one production, though there've been a million of those that have been amazing, but, but that, that kind of being able to step back and, and go visit someone whose life story we were able to tell and to go, whoa, I can't believe we got to be a part of that. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's amazing. That's what one of the great things about what we do in terms of being unscripted and being real is getting to know incredible people who, like you said, are the best at what they do. So, yeah, uh, yeah. and and all over the world. So, like you said, that yeah, that's incredible. Think about it. You've got great photos on your phone, but what are you doing with them? If you don't have free prints yet, you gotta get it. Free Prints is a free app for iPhone and Android that lets you print all of those photos for free. You get 1,000 four by six photo prints a year and all you pay is a small shipping charge. You can even print photos of other sizes for next to nothing. Just select the photos you wanna print, choose the sizes and you're done. Your premium quality prints will arrive on your doorstep in just days. Free Prints is one of the world's favorite apps. 
Download it now at freeprints.com and start enjoying real, professional, quality free prints. No subscriptions, no commitments, just free prints. Again, go to freeprints.com to get the app and your 1,000 free prints. I want to ask you about a project that is completely different, uh, something I really enjoyed, which was Trial by Media. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah, a documentary series for people who haven't seen it on Netflix. Um, As I believe six parts, and uh, you went, you you and your team uh, found some uh, famous trials that were heavily uh, talked about and focused on by the media over the past several years, you know, past like 30 or or so years. It was really interesting. Again, I'm, you know, I'm 40-ish. Remembering like the Jenny Jones trial and Lago and and Richard Scrooge, it's funny what we forget. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, that's all what I kind of grew up with, Uh, the Jenny Jones trial really was like, oh my God, I remember that. Were you from, Um, are you from the Midwest? I am. Yeah. Cincinnati. Oh, okay, cool. Are you, are you a Bengals fan? Are you excited Uh, about Joe Burrow and heartbroken about his injury? Well, there you go. So excited. Yes. Terrified at, (laughs) terrified by how badly is like how badly he's hurt so i have no idea i'm holding my breath for several months now to see (laughs) if he's gonna be yeah yeah totally he was really fun to watch though anyway so off topic but yes trauma media i mean um really lucky for us to be able to work Uh, this is again this is the best part of this job i i've you know i I started as a director and then chef's table opened this whole other door for me of being able to produce stuff and, and show run stuff. And uh, that was something I had never really, <laughs> if I'm being honest, I don't think it's something that anyone necessarily thinks about when they're thinking about getting into this universe, you know, directing is so, is so dominant from a narrative standpoint in the way that we think about the film and television industry um, from the outside. So it's just been really cool to be a, able to produce stuff. So for that show, I mean, I directed the Richard Scrushy episode. Um, I worked with my team to, to find all those stories and to figure out, you know, which ones we were going to do. And uh, I then, you know, collaborated with Netflix on choosing directors. Um, and we had an amazing group of people. So for Jenny Jones, I was Tony Ascenda who created American Vandal, the iconic show. Got it. So yeah. funny. Yeah. Uh, the P- I should say, I actually think I'm contractually required to say that's the Peabody award-winning uh, American Vandal, which is a comment that only makes sense if you've seen the show and know that it's basically just uh, one long uh, dick joke, uh, but with and a lot of... For people who haven't seen American Vandal, one of the main characters is the turd burglar. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, so... If you need a laugh, to, you know, because of COVID, you've run out of things to watch. Watch American Vandal. <laughs> yes, this genius show. So I, I had been really excited to, you know, because that series, which is a scripted series, is shot in a, actually Adam Bricker, who shoots Chef and um, shot a little bit for me on Amanda Knox as well and does a lot of my stuff. He uh, He's the DP of Vandal and he, I'd gotten to know Tony a little bit and I just thought, oh, that show is shot in a kind of faux doc style that I bet you Tony would be really good at doing a real doc uh, and so um, I kind of cor- corralled him and um, 
begged him to do it. And so, so he, he directed that episode and then, you know, Garrett Bradley, who just made the amazing time, which I think, you know, yeah. nominated for an Oscar this year is an incredible movie. Did a, did an episode on the Amadou Diallo trial. We, Yancey, Yancey Ford, who made Strong Island, directed the Blago episode. Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, we just had like a, 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 a quite a That's lineup of amazing team. directors yeah. yeah so so that was really fun for me because because I got to see all these people who have such different styles um tell these stories and my interest in the subject matter had really started with uh Man and Ox which you know for those people that don't know what that story is is about a American girl who studies abroad in in Italy and um eventually her her roommate is is tragically murdered Meredith Kircher and um, Amanda and her boyfriend at the time, Raffaele Celestito, an Italian guy, are accused of the murder. Um, and it becomes this crazy international story for years and years and years, a decade, basically. Um, and making that story, I'd, be, I'd become really interested in the way that the media covers these massive trials, that where these the narratives start forming around reality and what's true and what's false and how how our perceptions in the public are totally framed. And I sound like, sound like I'm stating the obvious, but are totally framed by the way that the media tells the story. Um, And so we just thought, oh, wow, it would be really interesting to look at a bunch of stories where that had happened in various ways. Um, Whether that means, you know, the defense is trying to, to craft their own narrative to counter the prosecution narrative, which is what happens in the Richard Scrushy trial the one that I directed in Alabama, which is just an all-time yarn, in my opinion, um, or you know whether it's the Jenny Jones trial, where y- you know you're actually putting the media itself on trial for um, you know what happens after a salacious daytime talk show turns into right. you know a couple of days later uh, one of the guests is murdered by by another guest. So you're just trying to look at all the different ways in which. Uh, you know, those stories about the courtroom, about what happens in the courtroom get propagated in, in the media and how they get told and manipulated and and um, and kind of molded into all these different forms. So that 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 was really the the start of that show. And we were really lucky to partner with some great people on it. Um, George Clooney and, and Grant Hesloff um, and Steve Brill and, and Jeff Tubin. So that was, you know, the the that was that was that series and a really cool experience for us um, at Supper Club to to work with that that many amazing folks. Did you form an opinion after studying these trials and directing uh, an episode, really digging in to the effect that media has on a trial? I mean, we all know now that you know media gets obsessed with big trials. They dig in and. You know they affect a jury pool um what is kind of like you know after doing the amanda knox doc and doing a six-part series on trial by media yeah do you have a feeling that the media is too involved and negatively affects a trial or is this just what we have to live with i i think i have kind of a nuanced point of view on it in that i look the media in the amanda knox case that i was really interested in was really the tabloid media and it was it yeah. was telling in a lot of ways the way that you know that story started in 2007 um and what's happening around that time period it's it, the rise of social media it's the rise of you know clickbait 
happens sure. starts to happen and so it, it, and what happens as a result of that is all of these international newspapers and publications that used to have bureau chiefs and reporters all over the world um it becomes a you know it, it becomes a situation where all those jobs go away and all right. of a sudden there's very little um every, everything kind of gets farmed out to freelancers and a lot of those freelancers end up being tabloid folks so like the journalist that we interview in the movie who you know is an amazing film character um <laughs> and was really open and honest with us uh worked for the the, the sun the daily mail i mean and then he was but he was doing stand-ups at the same time for like nbc and sky news places that are considered more hard news outlets and so for me the thing that i was really interested with that story is what happens when the tabloid news media starts bleeding into the mainstream news media and i i think that's a I, for me that's a problem because i i they, no one labels that no one says hey the sources here are the same sources that are you know coming from that crazy 72 point font headline in the yeah <laughs> in the yeah. daily mail right and so sure. that that's where i have a problem is you know, where we're actually losing a lot of the old school journalism that, that, you know, would spend a lot of time and a lot of resources to get to the bottom of stories and, and keep the public informed. Um, and so I, when media becomes just purely a form of titillation entertainment, I think we're all losing out. Um, at the same time, I don't think that all of the trial by media cases, the media is the bad guy. I think that really it's what we're trying to do is to say, hey, everyone should be really aware of what's happening, that, you know, what you're being told and what you're reading, it's really important for you to 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 figure out where that information is coming from. Um, and that's not in a conspiracy theory way. You know, that idea has kind of now been co-opted by um you know, people who are trying to sow doubt about what the mainstream, well-funded, well-reported media is, is working on. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's certainly some value in just understanding where the information that you're consuming is coming from. So I, I, I thought it was really interesting to go, well, how does a defense attorney, how can they change what the story is in the paper? How can by, how can they, by understanding how the media works, how can they know that Hey, the media needs a 10-second soundbite. If you, if the, if the prosecution for the U.S. government is giving a 45-second soundbite that's kind of boring, and you give a 10-second soundbite that's really fun and entertaining, they're going to use the 10-second fun and entertaining one, right? Abs and how does absolutely. that change the way that we see a story? That was really what I was interested in. So it's it's not really putting the media on trial so much as analyzing the ways in which we all consume content and, and how those value structures are changing. So that, that to me, I guess, I guess I'm sort of avoiding an answer a little bit, but I don't think it's about like a simplistic, is the media good or bad thing? I think it's really situational and it's really about how can we all demand more from the, the organizations that are, you know, financing the way that we, <laughs> the way that we get information. How can we say, Hey, we really want to be informed. We want to, you know, we care about what we're being told being true and, and, and stuff that we can 
you know, know is uh, reliable. And then it's about bolstering the systems of, uh, dis, you know, bolstering the, the systems that distribute that information to, to be a little bit more resistant to the disinformation uh, machine. And now it's like, you know, to your point about disin, you know, misinformation um, and what is truth and what, you know, out, what's the influence of the media on the actual story? I mean, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people get it, get their, they're getting their news from blogs, they're getting their news from Facebook, they're getting their news from Twitter. And there is no like, oh, well, maybe I should read another article or maybe I should read an article or like, <laughs> or the, yeah, the article that the article that the headline is uh, actually attached to. Yeah, I, totally. I mean, I even I, I think we even discussed when we were naming the show, you know, does trial by media sound <laughs> like if you're sharing that just the title, right? And yeah. not and not going any deeper, does the title sound like it's anti-media, right? And, yeah. and, you know, so those are all the things that now you have to think about. Um, but it's too complex to really, to really come up with immediate responses or, or, or solutions. But I, but I definitely think that from a disinformation standpoint, I was blown away. There was some study last week that showed that after Trump was banned from Twitter, something like 72% of disinformation about the election was uh, quelled on yeah. Twitter. I was like, oh, well, maybe this whole notion that Facebook and Twitter propagate um, that, you know, they can't do anything, that it would be too expensive and too time consuming to control, uh, you know, this different disinformation, you know, maybe that's sort of a BS excuse by them. And the reality of it is that, you know, that that material is actually driving their bottom line business. And so it's it's much more related to a cold, hard um, yeah. financial decision than it is to actually uh, wanting to, whether or not they can solve the problem. Yeah, I got to ask then. So yeah. <laughs> Amanda Knox, do you believe her? Is she guilty? Is she innocent? What do you, what go on the record, man? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll tell you what I, what I, I've told everyone else. I mean, I think that, you know, certainly from the evidence that was that was presented, I think that, you know, there was there was no DNA evidence um, that stood up in court that uh, showed that she was there or that she had um, taken part in the murder. The the Supreme Court, the Italian Supreme Court, basically threw out um, that evidence which had been presented in the in the early trials. And so, um, you know, from that standpoint, I try to look at all of these things not not from an emotional, like, do I look into her eyes or someone's eyes and yeah. see the, the, <laughs> the black sure. hole or whatever? Like, I don't know, a lot of people kind of, and I think it was a, that was a lot of what the movie was about, you know, that, that people, people, wanna, people wanna believe stuff because of the, the way they feel. Um, so I've always tried to go, okay, well, the court said, you know, this was the evidence that was that was relevant. And so I, I think from that standpoint, they've, you know, they they did a good job of, you know, eventually kind of coming to that conclusion that there wasn't enough evidence. Um, but I don't I don't know. I wasn't there that night. Who knows whether we'll ever have more um, right. another breakthrough. But but I think you can only go by what's presented. And I um, so I, I think it ended in the correct way. Being Home with Hunker is a podcast where we visit with designers, artists, and creatives in the spaces that express and shape their identities, their homes. 
If you love design and decor, if you're curious about how people live, or if you've been transitioning or transforming your own home, you'll love these honest conversations. Join us weekly at Being Home with Hunker. Visit hunker.com forward slash podcast where you can find, subscribe, and listen to the show. You've got some really cool projects with Disney Plus. Yeah. Uh, You know, which is, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of people who have kids have really, you know, jumped on the Disney Plus bandwagon and a lot of people are excited. They've got some Marvel, a big Marvel slate coming up. Uh, Can you tell everybody about some of your shows that you all are doing for Disney Plus? Yeah, I mean, so we we as a production company, um, you know, we we've been working in an overall deal with with the Walt Disney Company for the last couple of years now. And we've been really lucky to work with a bunch of these amazing gosh, I I guess they're like brands unto themselves, right? Like Marvel, Pixar, um, Walt Disney Animation all the amazing places under the Disney banner. So our first show with Disney plus is called Marvel 616. And that, that came out um, in November and so proud of it. Uh, Our third partner, Jason Sturman, um, who has EP'd a bunch of amazing documentaries that, that I'm sure that everyone out there has seen like 13th and five came back and worked on Icarus and, all sorts of amazing films. Um, he he show ran this show for us, and he um, you know was trying to take a look at parts of the Marvel of the of the real Marvel universe, the the real life Marvel universe, not the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Um, and dive into the Marvel Comics world and and find really interesting stories that would appeal to a bunch of people. And and in a lot of ways, it's sort of like the ESPN 30 for 30. It's like the 30 for 30 of the Marvel universe. So, you know, it's not, it, every episode is not about the same kind of topic. Like Trial of Media, you know, it's an anthology show, but every episode right. is about a, you know, a single case, right? So Marvel 616, we have, you know, Alison Brie directed a, a great episode about Marvel plays that were put on in a high school in Florida. And so that episode is as much about the kids and what you know what they see in the in the superheroes that they connect to and you know how does it how does playing a superhero change your perception of self and all of that you know it's about a lot of that kind of stuff and then you know Paul Shear the hilarious Paul Shear yeah du- directed an episode that's kind of a meta playful uh, documentary and it's not it's not a mockumentary but it's a you know a comedic documentary where he goes on this journey to to discover the the forgotten Marvel characters, right? So um, characters that you know are not <laughs> are not Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man sure. And, sure. and 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 he ends up, you know, his reasoning for that is like, I'm Paul Shear. I'm not like Tom Cruise. I've got to find who. What's going to be my Marvel character? And then he makes this amazing sizzle reel for this comic book that he finds that I won't spoil, but everyone should watch okay. it. So so you know, t- tonally and stylistically, each episode is really distinct. David directed an episode on Japanese Spider-Man, which is a really wild twist on Spider-Man, um, a Japanese television show that was made um, was with Stan Lee's blessing back in the day. So, you know, there's so many different kinds of stories in the Marvel world that we tackled for that um, with different directors. And, and so that was a really fun experience for us. And I think that people have really responded well to the show and we're really proud of it. So 
definitely check that out. And then, um, you know, we're working on a bunch of, we're working on a bunch of things. Um, this, this, some of the stuff that's been announced, David is directing a documentary on Wolfgang Puck. That's the, awesome. The celebrity, the kind of first celebrity chef. So a documentary almost, I almost call it like the, there's like the, the Gelb food trilogy with chef's <laughs> table, Jiro. And then this is, you know, David and, and I have been, you know, wrapped up telling stories of all these people who have become really well known in the food world. And Wolfgang was the the first celebrity chef, really, in a lot of ways. So it, telling his story has been really cool. That that'll be out sometime, gosh, this year sometime. But and then you know we're doing a really cool project with Pixar. We're we're rebooting um, an, a short form documentary series called People and Places, that hopefully will be a place where you know people could come to watch short form documentary content on on Disney Plus. So we're doing lots of different things. Um, with working with all of the the brands within Disney, and and that's been really great, and and you know continuing of course to make uh, Chef's Table and Travel Media and um, Street Food for for Netflix. So we've just been really lucky to be able to work with a couple of amazing companies um, over the last few years. It's a good segue for me. There is a new streamer that will be joining the ever growing uh, fold if you will, uh, Paramount Plus will be joining the crowd on March 4th um, of 2021. And so this is Viacom CBS. Um, and this is, you know, what was, I guess, CBS All Access is now transitioning and they will become Paramount Plus. And this will include Viacom CBS. This will include MTV, CBS, Paramount Pictures, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, BET, as well as some live news and sports. How do you approach, what is your thought on the amount of streamers that we're looking at now? Look, from my standpoint, it's amazing. Uh, I think the more people that, because what, what all these streaming places are, are doing is that they're finding, they're finding their audiences and, and learning, you know, what do those audiences really respond to? And I, th I think that's a really great thing for for creatives to know, okay, hey, you know, people are really watching documentary content, especially yeah. for people in our in our space. Yeah, you know, it was never clear before what was the what was the path that a documentary could be quote unquote um, profitable in. You know, was was theatrical the only avenue? Was you know, it, it's and so this whole universe of nonfiction TV you know, becoming uh, more diverse and bringing in traditional documentary films and then documentary series in addition to nonfiction stuff. And there being a blurring of lines in some ways between documentary and reality and some of the doc, you know, this new high-end documentary aesthetic working its way into the reality world and vice versa. You know, all, I, I, I think it's all been great because we just see that audiences are there. Yeah, And the coolest thing about the streamers to me is that it's broken down a little bit of the genre phobia. I think documentaries used to be seen as just purely medicine, right? Yeah. Like I grew up in a family that only had PBS. We didn't have any cable. So for me, for me, you know, it doesn't, I wouldn't say medicine, but like for a lot of people, I think there is this idea that a documentary was something that was on public TV. So, you know, you had your American PBS versions and it, it was only Ken Burns was the only style. Yeah. That's what a documentary is. Or um, only BBC house style with a very 
posh British accent voiceover. Those are the only two styles of documentary. And now I think you see with Netflix, with Disney Plus, with, with I mean, every there's so many now, I don't want to run down a list, but right. with all of them, it's no longer like you have to navigate to the documentary section to find the docs. If you're yep. watching a true crime series that's scripted, there's no reason why you wouldn't love a wild world country. If yeah. you're if you're watching Julie and Julia, why wouldn't you love Chef's Table? You know, there's right. there's sort of and and so removing that barrier to entry, I think, has been the coolest thing for people in our world to see, which is oh, we're not the stepchildren anymore. People like documentary content as much as they like scripted content. So, from my standpoint that's the the great thing that the streamers have brought. And of course, there's going to be at some point a culling of the herd and there's not going to be quite as many places I would imagine. But also think about it this way. The world is now, um, we're now talking about our show. You know, when we make a show, we're thinking, okay, well, people in Singapore are going to watch this. People in right. Thailand is going, are going to watch this. This isn't the same thing excuse me, this isn't the same situation as making something for an American network and then trying to sell off territories overseas. And so when you think about that, you know, maybe it's going to be a situation where it seems like we have too, it seems to us like there are too many streamers. But when you think about the fact that there's billions of people worldwide right. who all want to watch different things, um, maybe what it's going to turn into is a, is a situation where all of these places figure out their brand and their niche um, and the stories they want to tell and that appeal to their audience and you know maybe maybe we are just going to see a lot of places producing a lot of content and really what changes is all of us have to think of our shows globally now instead yeah. of thinking of our shows as sort of like hitting that flyover yeah. you know, what they call the flyover country like maybe yeah, now flyover, it's like, yeah flyover states yeah. yeah yeah no now you have to find something more universal and more human um that's not that's not about a specific country but it's about it's about the story um i think that's exciting no i, th I think it's really smart and i think uh, it's a great point that that's the difference between a netflix then you know you're doing a show for tlc where the flyover states are crucial and you do have to keep that in mind totally but now discovery plus i mean that's going to be right? everywhere as well so i just i just think that there are you know so many of these streamers are are going international it's not even going to be net it's not just going to be netflix they're they're yeah. way ahead but um you know disney plus is in a ton of countries already i think all these places apples in a ton you know the, yeah. all these places are going to be everywhere and i think that's exciting i mean i don't know about you but some of the shows that i love the most are the darks and the you know the the shows that are coming yeah. from other parts of the world that break through because they're great shows and it doesn't matter like it's so great that it doesn't matter that a show is subtitled Correct. for people to watch it yeah. like that is the coolest thing um and so i'm really i'm really excited about the future of how all this stuff is headed indeed um all right i always like to end the show with um you know what you're watching or what people should watch and so obviously you have uh, a few things that are that are out there and maybe some things that are coming up um i i just saw a documentary on netflix called crack <laughs> definitely not light fair but uh, uh directed by stanley nelson oh really, that's the about the 
cocaine epidemic? Yes. Or the and, crack epidemic? Yeah, I mean, tremendous work, great documentary, really enlightening. I mean, again, like I, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. So, you know, you forget about that era. And, totally. and so, well, and Stanley's such a legend. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So was, I highly recommend that for, for the audience. Again, not something if you're in the mood to laugh. <laughs> that's not it but again like you've said you know documentaries are a great thing you know you want to learn something this one you definitely it's a good reminder i love that that sounds that sounds awesome from on on my end i really i really strongly recommend a documentary feature from last year called feels good man okay um it won at sundance last year and then it's it kind of had a self-release as far as i understand and the movie is just so freaking good um, and I think on its surface, it might seem a little depressing, but I, there's definitely some depressing components of it. It's about um, this artist, Matt Fury, this Bay Area based artist, Matt Fury, who um, creates a comic character named Pepe the Frog. Um, okay. And the movie is about it kind of getting co-opted by the alt-right and it becoming diving into this 4chan universe. Oh. And, and Pepe gets kind of, people start putting Nazi paraphernalia on him and he becomes this icon for this radical movement. And then, it, but then this artist who's this kind of laid back, I'm gonna describe him as a laid back California surfer, regardless of whether he is or not, but that's sort of his personality in the movie. Um, this guy has to figure out how do I take control of my art back? How do I take my, how do I, can, can you get your character back once it's been devoured like that? And the movie is just so crazy. And I think it, um, I, I thought it was one of the best docs of this past year and no one really, uh, I, don't, I don't think enough people have seen it. So I, I think that everyone should go rent that, that movie. Feels good, man. Uh, it's say, so good. That, that is now on my list. I, will... I love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brian, thank you so much for giving me the time. I know you're a busy man. Steve, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'll talk soon. For everybody out there, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitch, or Luminary. Tune in. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. I'm also on Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz. If you have a question, hit me up. No script, no problem. Podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.